Hi, everyone. I'm Jasmine's brother, Manny. This week on the show, Bridgerton's diversity problem, plus the Latinx origins of punk music. Wow. Okay. All right. Let's start the show. I'm Jasmine Garst, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Happy weekend, listeners. So last week, I caught up with season two of the show Bridgerton. It's one of Netflix's most popular shows ever, so don't act like you haven't been watching it, too. But in case you really don't know, it's this TV series set in the 19th century based on the novels by Julia Quinn that is all about romance and sex. You know the vibes. Lots of passion. All I find myself thinking about, all I find myself being able to breathe for is you. Romantic pursuits in the pouring rain. I love all of you. Even the, the parts that you believe are, are too dark and too shameful. Every scar, every flaw, every imperfection. Someone falling into a pond. What? Oh my, are you hurt? Not at all. Rather welcoming refreshment. Is it not Bridgerton? Woo! Now, I myself grew up on a steady diet of Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, and telenovelas, so romance is kind of my jam. The difference with Bridgerton, though, unlike other 19th century tales I've seen on the screen, is that this Shonda Rhimes show has a really diverse cast. The queen is a black woman, this season's heroines are two sisters from India, and a lot of people have celebrated this. How cool is it to finally see women of color participating in the fun, in the romance, instead of once again having to play servants and enslaved people? I understand that this season they toned down sort of the spiciness. And so it's a lot of near touches and like, you know, frustrated glares. And like, you (laughs) you gotta love a good glare. My first guest on the show is Kristen Warner. She's an associate professor in journalism and creative media at the University of Alabama. And she focuses on the politics of pop culture, which, okay, seriously, I want that job. Professor Warner has been thinking about Bridgerton a lot. She even wrote a whole piece for New York Magazine about it. She says what bothers her about the show is that even though actors and actresses of color are playing a wide breadth of roles, their race, as well as the history of what their skin color meant, is not acknowledged at all. Now, just a heads up, listeners, especially parents, Kristen and I get into some of the sexier parts of Bridgerton in this chat. Here's Kristen. While the romance is the primary driver of what makes Bridgerton so, you know, such a fun show to watch, one of the things that the showrunners, you know, including the executive producer Shonda Rhimes, they've talked a lot about is the integration of diversity of racialized bodies um, into the show and that adds this sort of level of visibility and what they're calling color consciousness. But my small quandary with that is that when you don't adjust the race, when you don't adjust the part for the person who takes it, and that person 
is of a different body or different ability or any sort of thing that you weren't necessarily imagining when you first wrote the part and you don't make the adjustments. You may unintentionally, um, negligently, certainly not maliciously, but you may unintentionally produce a stereotype or reproduce a trope. So, you know, an example that I mentioned in the article is um, in season one, with the Duke of Hastings, where he there is a lot of attention and reconsideration of the scene where he and his love interest are being intimate and she holds him down and, you know, forces him to uh, finish inside of her, right? Well, at the same time as that's happening, we think of that as rape. Right. But we also need to think about it in the context of the body, right? And the bodies in, in juxtaposition with each other. So this young white woman's body with this black man's body. And what are the histories of the way that they are positioned with regard to each other? What is the, the way that we understand black men and breeding and sort of the idea of them as bucks who are designed for the purpose of, rec- of procreation? And so if we don't think about that, then it's bad enough that that scene happened as it was. It takes it another level when you consider the history of black men's bodies in those spaces where they have no consent. You know, it certainly um, adds a layer of complication, but is also why it's so important that it be addressed somehow um, in the writing. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'm thinking now, like I'm trying to think of a moment in which the show addresses race at all. And I'm really coming up short. I I think people have mentioned one or two scenes from season one where it's just sort of mentioned as a, a passing comment, something that you would need to sort of be cued into to notice and to sort of take in as like an acknowledgement of sorts, but not in any way that would harsh someone's mellow, which is what I think a lot of this is about. Um, And so, you know, like with season two, I think there's a lot of attention to the Sharmas and how they were colorblind cast, essentially. They were written as white characters. The Sharmas is the family, the the Indian family. The main love interest is is an Indian woman. Yeah. Yes, yes. And so, you know, they were written in the Quinn novels as a white family that the executive producer um, switched to an Indian family. And I think that's fantastic. Like think about expanding casting. And again, like I think the idea at the surface is great. You want to see difference, but we're not dealing with colonization. We're not dealing with the space of India as the colonized space in the empire. And, you know, the political and economic and and actual violence, right, that is expended upon those citizens. It's so interesting that that what you are distinguishing between is color blindness versus color consciousness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, are there any shows in this fluffy, like lighthearted vein that achieve that in a satisfactory way to you? You know, I mean, in terms of the same sort of romance series and and shows in historical sort of romance in particular, I can't think of any off the top of my head. But, you know, it's also because historical romance isn't really my bag as much. But I can say that are there shows that exist? Yes. One of the shows that I often like to talk about um, is uh, Robert and Michelle King's The Good Fight on Paramount Plus that I think it's a show, it's a lawyer show. Um, But 
as a lawyer show, it still does the work in thinking about race and more specifically thinking about Blackness. And not just in one area, because I think a lot of the critique about what I've written and what I've said about Bridgerton is like, well, is there just one kind of Blackness? No, absolutely not. There is Blackness is not a monolith. But I think that there's something really enriching about the idea of multiplicities of Blackness and all being on the same show. So there are, are a chorus of opinions from different generations of Black folks, different age groups, different ideologies. There are conservative Black folks and, and more progressive Black folks and folks in between. And all of them can appear and have a voice on that show in some capacity. And so that's not the singular focus of the show. The show is not a show about race, but that it is baked into the narrative structure and that it becomes a part of how we think, how the mm-hmm. show thinks about itself and its wor- the world that they are operating in. It, that's proof of concept. And that more than decoration, more than you know, visibility, that more meaningful visibility, true visibility for me is that the character doesn't just look like me, but that the character has something that, re- like there's something about how they talk or what they think about or what they've said or or how they've related to others that is resonant. So it doesn't have to be me. They don't, I don't have to know them, but there's something about them that's identifiable. Yeah. Yeah, no, another show that I'm thinking about when you're talking about other shows is like Insecure, right? Insecure mm. deals with race. Yes. Like yes. plentifully. But it's also a show about dating and friendships yes. and yes. you know, finding your way professionally in your 30s. Yes. Um it's not a show that is completely and totally and only about race. That's it just it's there because that's also part of the experience. Yes, it's baked into the narrative, and it's a show that I would I argue is uh, has like a bifurcated audience, right? Like it recognizes that it's a show about being in your thirties. It recognizes it's a show about Southern California, um, even as it, and which is accessible to a, a a lot of audience members who may not be BIPOC folks, right, or may not be Black folks. But there is also that baked into itness of Blackness that the show is not hiding or hedging behind in order to um, not make someone uncomfortable. And again, like, it's not to say that that Insecure's measure of Blackness is more or less real or more or less true than any other version, but it is to say that it is not relying solely on bodies to differentiate itself from something else. I think what you're also getting at is that TV and pop culture does inform our society and our societal mm. views and vice versa. And, you know, I grew up watching telenovelas and I still love them. They're like, I find them really fun. They're filled with nostalgia. I used to bond over them with my grandmother. But, you know, they're overwhelmingly fantasies about class and race. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the maid who ultimately wins the love and respect of the rich white guy. Mm-hmm. And to me, the pervasiveness, like the absolutely obsessive pervasiveness of this fantasy in Latin American pop culture tells me that we are societies in which class mobility remains absolutely impossible in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, Bridgerton is one of the most watched shows on Netflix right now. Season two mm-hmm. broke some Netflix records. What do you think the desire to hold on to this fantasy says about us as viewers? You know, I mean, I think 
again, I love my fantasy and my pleasure too, right? Like I love a billionaire narrative, like a billionaire trope novel where it's like he's a billionaire and she's, you know, middle class educator. <laughs> like love that. And it's like they meet cute or they they hate each other and then, you know, find yeah. a way to fall in love. Like there's something really compelling about those stories because it allows you access to worlds that you may never see. I think that there's something really productive about that, mm-hmm. and particularly for women of color. Because, you know, Black women, we aren't often seen in romance. Like, that's not a place where we have a lot of foothold in terms of television narratives and film narratives. So, and the same with Latinx women, you know, in, in the telenovela. Like, it's not a space where outside of that one format, you see a lot of these women be able to sort of engage in those worlds. But I also think, again, that even with those tropes that I so enjoy, I also really love when it's contextualized. These folks are quality, competent, proficient, and skilled writers. They have all kinds of ideas and missions and intrigues in their minds. Why can't they also think about characters dimensionally? Why can't they also put the time in to care enough about who these people are and the experiences that they come from to incorporate that smoothly, smartly, and seamlessly into their storytelling? The idea that they think everybody has to walk around with a sandwich board that says, I'm Black, or I'm Indian, or I'm Latina, or or whatnot, the idea that that's what they think of when I say, you know, make things more, like, there's nothing wrong with a black character being black, that that's what they think that that means. Oh, no, like that is so very opposite of it, that it means that you are, whoever this character is, that who they are, they are to their core and it's adjusted for them. Yeah. We do it all the time. Why can't we do it for them? Well, I just want to watch TV with you. (laughs) (laughs) sounds like it would be a blast (laughs) (laughs) thanks again to Kristen Warner associate professor of journalism at the University of Alabama she's also the author of the cultural politics of colorblind casting coming up we talk punk music I chat with the hosts of the new podcast punk in translation latinx origins stay tuned This message comes from NPR sponsor Yogi Tea. Support your body and mind no matter the season with Yogi Elderberry Lemon Balm Immune Plus Stress Tea. Adaptogenic herb ashwagandha and antioxidant black elderberry combine with soothing lemon balm in this citrusy blend to help support immune function and stress response. Support your well-being with Yogi Tea. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. Imagine buying a car the way you want, online from the comfort of home in person, on the lot, or a combination of both. CarMax lets you choose the way you buy. They'll even deliver your car right to your door in select markets. And no matter how you buy, CarMax has you covered with a 30-day money-back guarantee up to 1,500 miles. Learn more and start shopping at CarMax.com. CarMax. Car buying reimagined. When I was a teenager, I fell in love with punk music. And because I'm South American, sometimes when I tell people that, they are surprised. Which is surprising, because punk rock music gets much of its start with Latinos and Latin Americans. A brand new podcast explores that history. Because Latinas, Latinos, Ponqueras, and Ponqueros 
we have been instrumental in Punk's foundation from the very beginning. It's called Punk in Translation, Latinx Origins. It's on Audible in English and in Spanish. Nuria Net is one of the creators, and it's hosted by Ceci Bastida. She's a musician who once sang in the iconic punk band Tijuana No. I invited them both to come in today, and Ceci started off by telling me that for her, hosting this podcast was a journey of self-discovery. My connection to punk was kind of like the more general one. Like I, I loved the Ramones, uh, I loved uh, The Clash, I loved all these bands, but I wasn't really aware you know, of, of all these Latino musicians who were doing this music back in like the early 60s. I, I, did, I had no idea, so I was learning about it as I was, you know, as we were recording, um, and I was just kind of blown away. And soon it became clear to them that this was a podcast about more than just Latin music. Here's creator Nuria Net. It's also a podcast about Latino identity and what does it mean to be Latino across generations. You know, sometimes being Latino or Latinx might make you feel like an outsider. And what is punk if not a band of outsiders? We started off our conversation remembering how we fell in love with punk. I remember when I discovered punk. I was I was back home in Buenos Aires. I was a really angry teenager, and <laughs> I, I needed a pair of gym pants at the time because I had hit puberty and nothing fit. So I walk into this, like, rock and roll paraphernalia shop that <laughs> sold tights, and I walk in, and this music is blasting, and I'm like, what is that? Like, that's the soundtrack to everything I'm feeling right now. <laughs> and the guy behind the counter goes, son los sex pistols. <laughs> And that was it for me. And I'm wondering, like, for both of you, what was the first time that you had that what is that sound moment? Nuria, you go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and one of my uncles, who's my godfather, he's a big music head, so he started taking me to concerts when I was around 14, 15. And I really got into rock and español with bands like Los Fabulosos Cadillacs or Café Tacuba or Tercio Pelados, who really do a mix of rock and punk. You know, that's where I discovered the mosh pit. And it also felt like freedom, you know. I was completely drawn into it because they were singing in Spanish. They were being loud. You know, even in the mosh pit, which sometimes they could get violent, but not really. Like, it was just like this feeling of freedom that we were all in communion writing those shows, so I was hooked forever. Well, for me, I, I don't have a specific memory of it, but I know that as a teenager, like you, I was trying to find my way, trying to find my my group of people, um, and I was in junior high and kind of discovering these kinds of music, you know, different kinds of music, uh, David Bowie, Bauhaus, a lot of new wave, some punk, and then when I met the, the members of Tijuana No, who back then were just kind of getting together to just create music. Um, you know, a few of the members were a bit older than I was and they were very much into punk and they would play these, you know, these records during our rehearsal breaks. And um, in, I think like like Nuria, I felt, you know, like I belonged somewhere. Like I felt like that was a place that I had to be. And there is this feeling of freedom. There's this feeling of, you know, you can do anything. 
Yeah, and I don't know about both of you, but but for me, what was liberating and beautiful about it was also that it provided like a space for women to be angry and vocal and physically mm-hmm. aggressive, which many of the women mm-hmm. you interview in the podcast, I'm thinking of like Alice Bag, you know, this iconic, right. like the mother of, of punk in Los Angeles. They talk about that, you know, um, it, but like that it was really a place also for, for, for Latina women to exist in a different way. Yes, totally. And what I love about what Alice had to say when she was growing up and when she first discovered this music and wanted to uh, create a band and start performing was, you know, this world that they created, which was open to everybody. You know, there there were, you know, everybody was allowed. It didn't matter where you were from. It didn't matter if you were queer, if you were uh, Mexican, Latino, nothing mattered. It just mattered that you were all together creating these these things together and nobody asked any questions. And and that felt to me like a beautiful place to, to be, you know, to be a part of. I was really touched by Rosie Rex's story. You know, she's Puerto Rican. She has a thick accent like me. And hearing her talk about being in New York in the late 70s, early 80s, she was a drummer, you know, also an instrument that you don't associate with girls. And she was there singing in Spanish, you know, at CBGB. And then she went on to to play with other bands, including, you know, she formed one with Sylvain Sylvain called Roman Sandals. She talks about how the label wanted her to dye her hair blonde. And she did that for the first album. But then she said, you know, my hair is going to fall off. Like, F this. I'm not doing this anymore. And she was able to get a, a song in Spanish that she sang. It was super inspiring and also made me think like, wow, how many other Rosies are out there that we don't know about? You know, there's another theme to the podcast, which is that the Latino experience uh, can be very punk in its in it of itself without even the musical element. Mm-hmm. And something that I'm I'm thinking is, you know, I like like both of you, I, I imagine grew up on some more traditional forms of music. You know, like there was some salsa, there was some bachata, a lot of cumbia. Um, <laughs> and it's sad because I, as a kid, was so annoyed and embarrassed by that. I had like this very internalized colonialism, like, ugh, it's another yeah. one of my aunt's cumbias. Um, <laughs> and now I love it. Like, I love cumbia now. But in retrospect, Latin music traditionally is a very DIY, like, punk rock ethos, wouldn't you say? My experience growing up also as a, as a you know, as a young girl, uh, my parents are Mexican, I'm Mexican, and, um, you know, there was a lot of ranchera music in my household. There was a lot of pop ballads. There was a lot of Rocio Durcal, a lot of Jose Jose. And like you, I, was, I just felt very, very embarrassed by it at times. Like, I, I didn't <laughs> want to listen to it. And, you know, it wasn't like today where you just, like, turn on Spotify and you listen to whatever you want. You kind of listen to what your parents listen to unless you had your own little radio. And so in the living room, it was always this music that I was just kind of um, kind of rejecting very much. And um, as I grew older, I realized that, you know, those influences stay with you. And, and I listen to Rocio Durcal and I love her. I listen to Juan Gabriel and I love Juan Gabriel. And I'm so glad that that was part of the soundtrack of my life. I, I'm very grateful that I was able to listen to all this music that I can connect to now and f- and find, you know, the beauty in it that I was not willing to see before. Yeah, and it has a very DIY ethos that's very similar to punk. I mean, ultimately, like Juan Gabriel, a, a gay icon singing ballads in, in that world, in that era, for that audience is like, like, how punk can you get, you know? 
Totally. Totally. And and that made me think a little bit about when we when we spoke with Los Lobos and, you know, they were making traditional Mexican music and playing in punk venues with punk bands. And th- that was, in a way, a way of being punk also, just, you know, taking this music that normally as young people you you tend to reject and, and making it yours. And I think I thought that was really interesting. You know, one of my favorite episodes of, of the podcast, it's because it's one of my favorite bands, is, is Los Saicos from Peru. And one of the earliest known punk bands are from Peru, Los Saicos. Uh, can, can you tell me a little bit more about why they are so important? Like, they were just so seminal. Yes, it turns out in Lima, 1965, you know, this, this group of boys formed a band called Los Saicos. We interviewed the lead singer Erwin Flores, who has been living in Washington, D.C., I think for the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, but back then, you know, he talked exactly about what we were saying earlier. He was a disgruntled, you know, <laughs> 20-something, you know, reading Herman Hess, having all this existential crisis as one has. He didn't really know how to sing or wanted to sing. There was no one else to pick up the mic. So he just started singing. And I just love that he didn't give, you know, a damn. <laughs> um, and you hear songs like Demolición, where he's literally screaming, shrieking <laughs> about <laughs> blowing up a train station. Like, it doesn't make sense. He, his voice sounds super harsh and horrible, <laughs> but it's that spirit, that attitude that is so appealing at the same time. By the way, so um, once upon a time, my one of my best friends and her four-year-old daughter came to stay with me here in New York. And um, whenever she was really, really hyper, it wasn't Sesame Street, it wasn't Barney, it was... Uh, Demolición by Los Saicos. That would, <laughs> we would play that song over and over. And she was like, Demoler, Demoler, Demoler. <laughs> and finally she would, you know, be Pass exhausted out. and take a nap. <laughs> right. <laughs> Los Saicos, excellent toddler music. <laughs> I need to apply that at home. <laughs> you know, another one of my favorite episodes is when... You know, you bring in Alice Bag, who, again, she's like the mother of of punk in Los Angeles. Um, she's a Chicana woman. And what's wonderful is that she really, like for her, punk was this way of fighting racism and misogyny and discrimination, right? Right. She came from a family that was, you know, that, that had their issues. She talks openly about her father being abusive. Um, and her wanting to leave and create this other world and be part of this other world. And she talks about that sort of anger coming out on stage for her, that she, that that's, was a way for her to release all this anger that she had inside of her, you know, singing on stage and being loud and being, you know, proud of who she was and not, you know, not trying to fit into, you know, certain ideas of what she should look like or how she should be. Both have a foot very firmly planted in in the music of today, you know. Um, and, and I'm wondering, as you embarked on this retrospective journey on the history of Latin punk, how did it make you feel 
about like like there is a certain lack of political messaging or political fight in Latin music today. I mean, I think we could say that it's it's very neatly packaged and much more than in the 70s. Did it make you feel any kind of way? Yeah, uh, for me, you know, it was really my first time getting into this music, you know, discovering these artists from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I was so surprised of how relevant and fresh it sounded because of its political messages or just because of how innovative it was for its time. We did want to, even though the, the podcast, you know, it's called Latinx Origins, we talk about the pioneers, but we wanted to bring it to the present. And we do talk to two bands who are active today. One is Downtown Boys, who were formed in Rhode Island, and they were actually formed in the labor movement. So their members met doing labor organizing. They they worked at hotels, and that's how they they started the band. And they are really vocal about, you know, talking about immigration issues, singing in Spanish, even though it's not their first language, because their first language is English, but they want to get the message out to, to Spanish-speaking communities. And you're right, you know, Latin music, commercial Latin music today, it is dominated by, you know, dance floor friendly bangers, which <laughs> I also love. And I'm glad we're dominating <laughs> worldwide charts, but it is not the norm. You have a, a great point. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Nuria. And I think um, the fact that they sing in Spanish is is political. Same with Generación Suicida, which is another band here in LA in South in, in South LA and um, you know they talk about their community and how people think of this area of LA as like full of crime and the fact that they continue to do this music and stay in this community to me it was very exciting to hear you know they're very young and they're very uh, knowledgeable about what's going on in the world it was just it was just really great to to hear all these new voices you know, talking about the things that are important to them and being really open and, you know, being themselves. This just makes me think, Ceci, you know, with your band, Tijuana No, you were so political, you know, being in the border, being so politically aware uh, in the 80s and 90s, you know, with the Zapatista movement mm -hmm. and, and all these things happening. Uh, even though your music was not commercial, you kind of were able to to be big and visible around the region. I wonder today, you know, would a band like Tijuana No have the same impact today or would it get lost in the, in the shuffle? Even though we have digital platforms, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not something that's um, championed today, maybe. There were so many bands around the early 90s that we were all sort of talking about similar issues that it became this, it felt like a movement. It felt like a big community, not just with bands from Mexico, but bands in Argentina, uh, bands like Mano Negra. We were all kind of in the same world. Mm. So I don't know what it would be like today. But back then, it just felt like there was this energy that was, to me, was just incredible. Even in L.A., you know, Rage Against the Machine and all these bands mm -hmm. were also inspired by the Zapatistas. You know, yes. why don't we, and we don't talk enough about that. Like, you know, an indigenous Mexican movement inspired huge American acts like, like Rage and others. Totally. So it's something to celebrate. I want to thank both of you so much. There, there's few things that give me as much pleasure as nerding out on music with, with other women. So I, I just... And thank you for creating something so beautiful and that is, is so important to telling the story of who we are. Thank you so much for having us. This has been really great. Thank you. Um, would you like to stay 
for, for a little bit and play a game with me? Sure. <laughs> that sounded a little creepy, but I promise it's fun. <laughs> this message comes from NPR sponsor, Best Fiends. Why put off having fun for that so-called free time you keep hearing about? You already do enough to earn it. Best Fiends is the mobile puzzle adventure game that gives you a little fiendish fun anytime, anywhere. Customize your team of characters and find even more ways to win with year-round events. Download Best Fiends free today on the App Store or Google Play. Plus, get $5 of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This message comes from NPR sponsor Madewell. Good days start with great jeans. The denim experts at Madewell use premium fabric and the latest denim technology to make super comfy, never-want-to-take-them-off jeans in fits and styles for everyone. In other words, your perfect pair is waiting. Ready to step up your denim game? Visit madewell.com and use the code NPRDENIM for $20 off your online jeans purchase. Terms apply. See madewell.com promos for full offer details. Okay, so now we're going to play a game. It's called Who Said That? And here are the rules. I'm going to share a quote that you might have heard in the news this week. And you're going to guess who said that or what it is about. There are no buzzers. You can just (laughs) yell out. It's very punk rock. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And and there's absolutely no prizes. (laughs) (laughs) Just bragging rights. Um, but it still is a competition. Um, mm. So, so yeah. Are you ready? Yes. Dale. Okay, vamos. Uh, so, for, for the first quote, uh, you can either tell me who said it or generally, what is it about? And it goes, we are really trying our hardest to remain humble at this point. But in the industry, we call that a clean sweep. Oh, God. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Should I know this? Are there other hints? Um, it's an R&B duo. Oh, I feel like this is for, from the Grammys, Silk Sonic. Yes. Oh, yes. Ah, I didn't watch the Grammys. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, that was Anderson Pack, a member of Silk Sonic, accepting one of four Grammys of the night alongside um, Bruno Mars, who's also in Silk Sonic. Listen, listen, listen. <sighs> We are really trying our hardest to remain humble at this point, okay? But in the industry, we call that a clean sweep. Oh my God, his hair was just amazing. It was like a bowl cut, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I saw, I saw photos. Says that you need to watch that. It's like, an, like como un Ike Turner, no? Yeah, yeah, I feel like I saw a random picture online and I didn't pay much attention, but now I remember. Yeah, that's them. <laughs> they were having so much fun in that ceremony. Like every time they won an award, they, they started dancing, you know, as they got up and walked into the stage. So smooth. That's funny. I've been listening to a lot of Bruno Mars because my six-year-old son loves him. So I was happy. Cute. I love Anderson Park. Oh, me um, too. I, I've seen him a couple of times live. He's so great. He's good live. I really would he's like really to see good. him live. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, next one. I'm going to give you a little help with this because this is like a really hard one. Hmm. Um, it is from a very old news report, old and grainy. It was unveiled this week. <gasps> I, I know. know, I know, I know. 
Oh, prince, no. prince. No. <laughs> the little prince. Oh, this is what happens when you play this game with music people. <laughs> it was the best news of the of the week by far. Yeah. I'm going to say I'm going to say the quote. It's a tiny little prince, you know, Roger Nelson, prince, his purple highness. Um, but he's like, what, is like seven or eight? Didn't they say that he was 11? And he's like the cutest little baby. But he's like identical. He's like, <laughs> I like know. he shrunk. He's like a baby wise man. Like he's just like speaking up, defending his teachers and like being all pro teacher strike. I'm like, wow, genius. <laughs> so what did he say? He said, I think they should get a better education too. And I think they should get some more money because they work, be working extra hours for us and all that stuff. Love him. And I love that they found this. Um, it's from 1970. He was 11 years old, actually. Um, and the station found the footage completely by accident. I know. It's so great. Yeah. And someone was like, is that Baby Prince? Bueno. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vamos a hacer el final quote. Oh, I'm going to change this a little because it's, um, I'm not allowed to say some words on the air. Okay. Final quote. Listen, I have never taken such a fast bathroom break in my whole life. Is it Questlove? No. This was Doja Cat at the Grammys. Is it all the Grammys? I didn't watch the Grammys. That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this was Doja Cat. Um, no, it, wait, who said Questlove? I said Questlove. <laughs> Questlove doesn't use the bathroom. He's just too much of, of a genius. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's Doja Cat. Um, oh. She was with SZA. Uh, yeah. She won a Grammy for Best Pop Duo Performance for Kiss Me More. And she was in the bathroom when the award was announced. That's amazing. Yeah, she had to run back and was like pulling up her outfit. I have never taken such a fast. Who won? I think it's a bit, it's kind of clear that Nodia slaughtered. (laughs) (laughs) Nodia is like, she swept clean like Silk Sonic. But did I not say Prince first? (laughs) You did, you did, you did, you did. Um, But But I think points deductive for implying that Questlove uses the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> I got lucky. It was a music week after the Grammys <laughs> and Prince. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for playing. Host Ceci Bastida and producer Nuria Net of Punk in Translation, Latinx Origins. That podcast is out now and it is so good. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you just for existing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. This is so much fun. Thank you, Jasmine. Hey, this is Jasmine's friend, Gabby. Ahora nos toca terminar el show como siempre lo hacemos. Every week, listeners share the best things that happened to them all week. Vamos a escuchar algunas de las respuestas de nuestros oyentes. Hello, my name is Matthew Kim. I recently graduated a couple weeks ago, and I am now planning to move to Los Angeles. Segwaying to the reason why I'm planning to move to LA, this past winter break, I was able to reunite with several friends that I've known since elementary school. It was a joy to cook and share meals with friends, reminisce about the past, and burst into tears of laughter. I felt especially thankful that I was able to 
reconnect with such old friends over the years and continue to build upon the years of friendship? Yeah, so I had a pretty cool moment with a fresh human, maybe one minute old. Um, this is the second time it happens to me this week where like a baby's born and then I, I sing a song to it. Um, the song that came to me was uh, La Negra Tiene Tumbao by Celia Cruz. Anyway, that was uh, definitely the coolest, bestest thing that happened to me this week. Hey, this is Elise from Connecticut. The best part of my week was getting to have dinner with my partner. Right now we live several hours away from each other and I'm so grateful for the time that we get to spend together. Hey, this is Lizzie Coyle from the East Bay area. The best thing that happened to me this week was going to see Boys to Men at the SF Symphony with five of my friends. And it just felt like old times and these are relationships I've had for such a long time and I cherish so much and it was just so fun to do something nostalgic and special and, and get all dressed up. So um, thank you for all that you do at the It's Been a Minute. Stay safe and I hope you have a great day. Thanks to those listeners you heard there. Matthew, Sandra, Elise, and Lizzie. Listeners, you can send your best thing to us at any time during the week. Just record yourself and send a voice memo to our new email address, ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. All right. This week's episode was produced by Anjuli Sastri Kurbachak, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, Chloe Weiner, and Janet Ujung Lee. Our intern is Asia Drain. Our editor is Acacia Squires. We had engineering support on this episode from Kwesi Lee. Our director of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. So until next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Jasmine Garst. Let's talk soon.